day, everyone. Uh, Malcolm Bailey here from Nozomi Networks. Uh, today's webinar will also be in joint uh, partnership with uh, Bruce Large from CyberCX. So thanks everyone for taking time out of your day to attend our session. Uh, today, as you understand, it's uh, about improving transportation system operational visibility and security. So just a couple of, uh, I suppose, uh, items to kick off before we start. So if there's any uh, Q&A that you guys want to um, uh, ask through, just use the Q&A button on your Zoom link, and then we'll answer that as we go. If there's anything that I suppose is I suppose long answers that require, we'll get to those after the actual webinar is finished and we'll get back to everyone. So a bit about myself, Malcolm Bailey. So I head up the uh, solutions and delivery projects side of business for Nozomi Networks uh, based here in Sydney, Australia. So I suppose in going forwards around my career, it's around 23 odd years of uh, practical experience in OT SCADA which also extends from, from the very beginning of designing, deploying and maintaining control systems. That started off with Honeywell in the industrial automation and building automation systems. Then I came through around consulting and assessing control systems and also managing large, large scale critical infrastructure where I was the SCADA operations manager for Ausgrid here in uh, New South Wales. But whilst uh, I was at Ausgrid, one of the largest uh, I think bits of pieces that I did was reconvene the OTCERT community with the Australian federal government because it's about that information sharing. Where I came from in my uh, initial career was about um, building out these systems, but then learning as we matured how to, I suppose, bring security into the concept of control systems. So that I'll hand over to Bruce. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. Yeah, so g'day everyone. My name's Bruce and I'm the Operational Technology Security Lead at CyberCX. Um, I have over 10 years, it's nearly 15 actually, of experience in IT and OT uh, in network and system engineering roles. Um, I've been around a few different places. So yeah, have experience in electricity generation, uh, rail, aviation, emergency services, and yeah, done a tour through consulting. Um, and just, yeah, before joining CyberCX, I was the OT cybersecurity lead at Stanmore Corporation, one of Queensland's uh, government-owned electricity generators and the largest of the government-owned electricity generators. Thanks for joining thanks. us. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. Uh, yeah, so for those of you who don't know, I thought I'd just share a bit of the background of CyberCX. Uh, we have 700, I think it's even getting closer to 800 uh, cybersecurity specialists, uh, and we exist in eight practices. So we go from strategy and consulting to security testing and assurance, which is you know pen testing, uh, a GRC, uh, capability, uh, a specialist identity and access management capability, uh, security integration engineering, which is really the focus of today's talk, uh, managed security services, uh, DFA or digital forensics and incident response, and training and education. And I think, yeah, just touching on, you know, we're, we're really focused on, uh, you know, customer experience, you know, how do we align business to cyber, you know, how do we do relationships well, values driven, so. And, and on top of that, uh, I'm an OT specialist that works across all eight practices. Yeah, I think today's <laughs> uh, webinar will be quite exciting. There's quite a bit, bit of information that we're going to share in, regard, in regards to, I suppose, our mixed uh, experience as well across uh, Bruce and myself. Hopefully, we can um, share a lot of information with you. Some more stories. <laughs> a bit of banter as well. <laughs> All right, so in regards to today's agenda, what we want to go through is pretty much five key topics. Uh, we're going to head for around that 45 minute mark, so leaving some time for the Q&A as well. 
So we wanted to head off, um, start with evolution of OT, approaches to securing OT networks, some of the relevant standards and references, a couple of case studies, and then uh, finalise with uh, those same resources where you can do some further reading. Awesome. Thanks, Malcolm. So yeah, when, when Malcolm and I are preparing for today, you know, kind of talking about what, what is the evolution of operational technology? Um, and yeah, I'm glad we both kind of look at this from a people process tech kind of viewpoint, right? But uh, I guess the technology, some of the most key uh, changes that we've seen. Uh, so yeah, my background, I'm, I'm actually a telecoms engineer by training, and there's been a massive shift of the communications protocols, right? So, you know, legacy, older days, things like uh, serial connections, serial multi-drop, so RS-232, 485, um, and, and even, you know, TDM, time division multiplexing technologies, modem technologies. But what we've seen over time is that communications platform moving to converged Ethernet. And that's quite a, quite a big deal, right? Because legacy uh, serial systems are very difficult for different channels to interact if it's not, you know, intended to. Whereas an Ethernet, by default, everything's open, right? And it relies on other security controls like firewalls to actually segment access. So on top of all that comms change, we've actually had a lot of changes to the devices. Um, so yeah, Malcolm and I were, were, were recalling in, in the old days, maybe the good old days, a lot of you know board level, and that's a train, fantastic. <laughs> uh, a lot of board level stuff, right? So analog, digital electronics, um, you know, you'd have racks and racks of specialist electronics, right? But what we're now seeing is a shift to you know common off the shelf or COTS. Um, and we're seeing a lot more of those IT things, you know, things like databases and historians and those kind of systems shifting into OT. And then, yeah, even the applications, right? So I know systems I've worked on have you know, shifted off uh, weird exotic versions of Unix onto like Windows, right? So we're going away from vendor specific applications into your common technology stacks, you know, like a, like a Microsoft server fleet. So there's a lot of change in technology and with the change of technology, there's, you know, change of people. Um, so different backgrounds and educational experiences. So I think Malcolm, you said you've, you've come off the tools as like an INC technician, so you know? It started off as a service technician within Honeywell. So it's about, I suppose, how um, that trade or the engineering aspect has come through. So practical versus theory. And then where do they, I suppose, intersect as well is been quite a, um, a mute point over many years as well. So even when uh, Bruce and I have bantered over the past couple of weeks, it's, it's um, sharing my thought process and um, Bruce's thought process or even how an engineer speaks, um, thinks, that sort of stuff and might write a long list of a, to an actual problem, but then say a tradesperson will come and say, no, you just got to do it like this. So- <laughs> I thought you were going to say grievances. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I mean, yeah, I think we we're talking about there's technician answers and engineering answers, right? Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm the beneficiary of many technicians saying, no, Bruce, <laughs> you just got to stop. Um, but I think what's really important is, yeah, like we, we look at the world differently and ideally uh, we have that kind of merging in those teams. And on top of that now we have, you know, a lot of IT people coming in, right? And you'll see different organizations where IT is getting more and more engaged with OT. And I think with all those changes of people, the training and professional development is different, right? I, I love on, on the trades people side of the world, you know, apprenticeships, traineeships, there's that real like focus on, hey, how do we do things around here? 
Um, engineers can learn from that, right? I think it's really important now, grad engineers buddy up with senior engineers to get that knowledge transfer and, you know, share, share the, the war stories and the wounds. And that then leads us to process, right? So the operating and support models for OT are, are drastically changing. So the days of, you know, soldering out a component are probably, you know, starting to, to wane, wane out. What we're now seeing is, uh, you know, more remote IT support, more uh, vendor remote support. And I think it's just important that we kind of set the scene here that OT is changing, not just in technology, but people and process. Um, yeah, the way we've evolved over time as well. So uh, people that might've done PLC programming or installation side of things, now they've got to understand how to do networking, database admin, sysadmin. So there's that whole concept that has to now shift. And that's how we see the convergence of IT and OT, because as we always know, IT are best practice in networking, server admin. And now you've got to bring that back into the OT side and say, now you've got to uplift that. Then again, we've got to share from the OT side how best to uh, work within the control system environment and up upskill the IT teams together. That's how we'll mesh. Yeah, and the context really matters. But yeah, I think it's a great point on networking. That's one I see quite a bit, right? So yeah, I think everyone knows they need to do stuff, but it's not always clear where to start, right? So I'm a big fan of uh, cybersecurity is the application of risk management. So to begin with, you need to be thinking about how you identify and how you manage your risks. Um, and, and to the previous slide, we're not just talking technology. You know, we're talking people, process, and technology. And there'll be different risks in those different domains. And I think if it's early days for you, it's really important to understand you know, what frameworks and standards are applicable and are all useful use uh, for your industry. Uh, there's a great slide coming up that Malcolm has that kind of maps in standards and guidelines that we'll talk to. but early days it can be very overwhelming right there's you know i like that there's that xkcd comic of hey i don't like this standard i better go build another one <laughs> now we have 15. and and i think on that note of itot convergence um how well do your it and ot teams you know work together have alignment uh so previously at stanwell corporation our, i worked on building the ot security program uh one of our key goals was how do we align OT security capability to existing IT security capability. If you've already made that investment, it makes a lot of sense to use that uh, because you get, you know, overflow of resources. If you have an incident, people understand how it works. And there's just a lower total cost of ownership. And something that Malcolm and I totally, uh, you know, on the same page is making it real with, you know, business impact assessments and tabletop exercises. So BIAs are a really great way for IT and OT to come together to understand each other's systems, each other's priorities, dependencies, how things should work together. And then tabletops are a really awesome way and, and I'd say quite a, a cheap way to bring people together to work through you know, new processes, to you know make sure people understand what you're implementing and a really good way to kind of test it out before you need to use it in, in production for real. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest thing that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks is that tabletop exercise because we have seen um, different type of incidents and having that experience within how to run that IR, it's quite important to then map out those gaps. If you don't understand what your gaps are and then you have that incident, then yeah, it'll all hell breaks loose. So yeah, key to running these multiple tabletop exercises is key. Definitely.
Um, yeah, thank you. So, you know, if we then start thinking about how we do security modeling, um, I'm a massive fan of MITRE ATT&CK for ICS. So adversarial uh, technique, uh, tactics and techniques and common knowledge. So there's a, a body of knowledge where a mix of looking at incidents as well as looking at how penetration testers compromise facilities, breaking down to you have uh, techniques across the top and tact, oh, wait a minute, sorry, tactics across the top and techniques as you go down, right? So this, this uh, was formed in MITRE ATT&CK, which is just for IT and has been extended now for industrial control systems. And it's great because it's a common language we can start using both for red team, so you know, penetration testers and people breaking things, and blue team for people trying to defend systems. And it's a, it's a good way that you can kind of look at your technology environment to say, yep, we have coverage. You know, we can, you know, we can detect this or we could stop this. You know, break the chain. Um, and it's a good way for if you're kind of looking at incidents to kind of share this is what they did. So you, you'll hear about TTPs, right? Um, adversary, yeah, tactics, techniques, procedures. So really, really useful uh, body of knowledge and definitely recommend you you look into this if you haven't. And then today we're keen to talk about uh, SOCI, so Security Critical Infrastructure Act. It talks about managing risk across four domains. So cybersecurity, but also physical supply chain and personnel. And it's important that risk solved in one of those domains could actually cause subsequent risk in other domains, right? So if we're managing risk consistently across the enterprise that we're considering all four domains. So, um, you know, for physical, right, if you lose physical security, it's a matter of time until you lose cybersecurity integrity. Supply chain's a massive, massive one, you know, SolarWinds, for example. Um, also, if you have third parties that are providing services to your company, how do you know what they're doing? You know, have you asked them how to do it for cybersecurity? How do you check what they're doing? And people, right? Like people are at the center of all of this. So, you know, do we have the right procedures to understand that we have the right people, that they, you know, they are competent, they know what they're doing, um, <clears throat> and they're not introducing other risk to the organization. Yeah. Uh, next slide. So Over to you, Malcolm. Yeah, thanks. So I suppose when we're looking at securing um, your systems, we've got to look at it from both the uh, the physical concept as well as that logical layer as well. So you know, some of the things that I'm looking at when say I might have a, a physical attack. So generally what they rely upon is what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we're going about our daily job, are we actually looking out for uh, differences or things that have changed, the, the things that aren't usual? So, and the way that we've responded to our past uh, attacks or past incidents is quite key because if we haven't tested the different scenarios, we're just going to do the same thing day in, day out or after incident, after incident. So if we don't change our methodology, we're ne never going to improve. And again, so the way that we're complacent and the way that we actually look at our work or the way that our system behaves is quite important. Uh, important as well, the way that we're actually rely on that pattern. And again, a lot of people have that tunnel vision too, as to saying, yep, I'm just going to do this uh, today. I'm not going to look out for anything else. So again, it's not having that right cultural uh, behavior set in our minds as to what is different from my day-to-day -day job. I've got to be looking out for these security things as well. 
And again, so if we've got a breakdown between our teams, so between the IT teams and OT teams, or even security teams, the people that are managing the physical layer around our sites. So things to be look on the uh, lookout for, which would help pick up on those and improve on those patterns is those unactioned security alarms. So again, bringing together the whole concept of uh, what a control system is around the operational technology layer itself, uh, these uh, additional um, points that can give us information from our CCTV as well will help understand where our weak points are. And a few other things that I've seen across my time is that where locks have been rekeyed. So again, this has been where disgruntled employees have um, modified uh, physical layers in our system. And also where I've seen on um, say Wi-Fi networks where they've been put up on poles, et cetera, for remote uh, sites is that these actual um, cabinets have been tampered. So there's, as you know, we're gonna be in a lot of remote locations. So again, we can't be everywhere, but we have to be on the lookout. And so what sort of notifications can we have to understand if we're gonna be compromised in any way? Yeah, that's a great point, Malcolm. Like keys are one of the most difficult things to defend, right? Um, I used to have my giant bunch of railway keys. It does say on there not to be cut, but you know, they do get cut. Um, and there, there's some interesting technology like cyber keys, right? Where they're like a digital electronic key. But I think um, really important that you understand like how you're trying to control these physical security measures. Because they're, they're often in a cybersecurity program will say, oh, that's out of scope. We can't do that. So you need to understand who's looking at that. Yeah, I think that that's uh, a key point too around your bunch of keys. I've seen that in a few different utilities as well. Everyone has a big bunch of keys to get into the various sites, but what happens at the end of, uh, of their employment too? What's the, the process to hand back those keys? How do you know that, that person could have been there 15, 20 years or something like that and have accumulated these keys? What's the, uh, the actual register that is, uh, I suppose, looked after this? You're asking all the difficult questions, Malcolm. <laughs> next, next slide. <laughs> So I think, so coming on to the other side of the business is like, what are we looking at for that cyber side? You know, so in addition to that physical aspect, I've got to be looking at for those, those communication links, the field devices, the control system and the physical behaviors. So things that I'm looking for around the communication side of things is the unexplained loss of uh, an actual link. So could it be from site to site? Has it been my SAT link? Is it uh, my actual WAN link that's gone down? So again, what am I looking for in there that will give me additional information as to what's occurred? So things that I've seen over, over time would be the increased uh, bandwidth usage. So the higher throughput between two endpoints and even uh, to the point where the tele their tel telco bills have increased over time too. So these are telltale signs that something has uh, is either misbehaving, there's a misconfiguration or is actually is there an actual another point of uh, ingress from, from an outsider. Then the other things that I'm looking for is those successful uh, connections to the public internet. Like that should not be occurring within the control system environment because we should be going through our DMZ through the enterprise network then out to the actual internet that way so, or even through a proxy server. So if I'm seeing a, a direct handshake um, connection uh, from my uh, control system out to the public internet, geez, that's a bloody red flag that we've got to be uh, pulling down straight away. So having uh, great awareness there. The other thing around the field devices, 
So unexpected connections into my PLCs, my RTUs. So yeah, I expect my local site HMIs to be connecting to them or I might have a, an RDP connection from an engineering workstation back up in my control room, but I shouldn't be seeing anything say come direct from my corporate network into here, or I shouldn't be seeing um, site A be uh, talking to site B. I should be going straight up to the control room or back up to my firewall and back down. So there's a few different um, points of um, ingress here that I'll be looking at. And even in the control system side, so it's not just that the physical assets that we're um, looking at for changes, but then it's the other part of the actual control system, which actually is doing the, the control and monitoring, which is like our analog inputs, analog outputs, dig-ins, dig-outs. So if there's any different types of function codes or if there's any modifications to these types of commands, that aren't usual to a particular uh, location, then these are things that have to be called out and investigated as well. So the last thing is around the physical assets. If you're doing a walk around your place uh, or your site and you see a new PC, or if you see something plugged into the USB port that isn't or should not be there, or if you see uh, a new uh, patch lead going in from one cabinet to another cabinet and it's not in neat, cause that's not the way it's actually done, then that's something to call out as well. So th these are the types of things that I'll be looking at over time. Yeah, definitely, Malcolm. It's good to have that situational awareness of what's normal, right? And I think that's something that we need to do more of rather than just investing in preventative controls. It's understanding what's normal, how we detect uh, anomalies, and then how we respond. Yeah. So, yes, again, that cultural shift in the um, your staff's mindset that it's um, that cyber aspect we've got to um, interlay now. So some of the points uh, around the cyber investigation, so making sure we're coming back to that cross-training of our OT, IT, and the actual physical security teams as well within the organization. So again, it's expanding uh, who, who's gonna be involved if there is an incident as well. So everyone has to be aware of the different systems uh, the different functions that that team will actually undertake. And then the key thing here is around what evidence will be required to, uh, to further investigate. So making sure we've got the right uh, level of logging within our environment, making sure the log retention is a key thing too. So that's been a, uh, a something of point over time where you might have a log rotation after one day or even uh, two minutes or something like that. So making sure you've got that policy in place too. And the way that we report the actual incidents up to our senior management and how much uh, information and at what point do we need to escalate as well. So that's quite key. And again, it comes back to what Bruce was saying earlier around that tabletop exercise. So just having uh, these procedures and the policies in place. And what, how do we plan for minimizing those impacts as well? So say, for example, if I do have a cyber attack on a particular server, is it safe to you know, power down straight away and it's not gonna impact any actual physical operations? Like, is it gonna um, cause a derailment or something like that? Or what would be that, light, that uh, high risk rating for doing a particular action within your environment? And again, coming back to those critical infrastructure acts as well within the regions, is what, uh, if there's any regulatory um, responsibility for reporting as well. So knowing what our, um, capabilities are there and how do, how much information can we extract from our systems to then create that actual report that will go out from our uh, senior management to an external party as well. So 
having uh, coming back to that logging capability to then extract that information will be key to uh, having a full report. And then the different ways that we can examine our systems too. So the initial examination, just to do that uh, site inspection, the visual aspect, again, just going around saying what's, what's normal, is there anything out of place? So is there a new physical asset or new server or workstation laptop that's appeared, even down to a, a cellular modem that's just been plugged in somewhere for remote access. So just having someone that is familiar with a site or within that actual data center to be able to go through and uh, do your eyes and ears for what's going on. And then as you, you know, go down into the level of examination, it's increasing that level of expertise. So down to that detailed examination of say, you might be pulling in a third party now to help uh, look through and investigate those file systems and even down to the binaries of the applications that have been, uh, that could have been modified within the system down to the you know, ones and zeros onto the hard drives. So again, there's quite a fair amount of um, information required to do and carry out that um, investigation. I think I'll take this one, Malcolm. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a, a framework nerd, <laughs> if you know me. So uh, I think a great starting point is the Purdue model. Um, the more you do in OT cybersecurity, it'll just come up all the time. And you know, you'll just hear people make reference to level three or you know, level two or three point five. It'll just keep coming up. And an extension of that is actually ISA ninety five. So ISA, the International Society of Automation. I'm actually wearing the shirt today. <laughs> um, working Group 95, their job was to figure out how to connect IT and OT systems. And I think specifically the first use cases was around manufacturing. So how do I have a business system like an ERP or a order tool talking into a manufacturing execution server to then talk down into automated tooling? Um, and what's nice is ISO 95 also looks at kind of the the software and messaging flows. So definitely a great starting point. Uh, then, yeah, if you're doing anything with OT cybersecurity, you will have seen ISA, um, IEC 62443, which I think is super cool because it has 443 in the, you know, in the number, like SSL, but anyway. <laughs> but um, awesome, awesome framework. If you haven't, I'd really recommend checking out the ISA GCA, the Global Cybersecurity Alliance. They have a, a quick start reference guide. I'll, I'll throw the, the link into chat, but really awesome. Like, I think it might be a 15, 20 pager that walks through the standard. So it's a series of substandards. I think from memory on the spot, I think it might be 16, 17 substandards. But what's nice is it looks at the different scopes of um, cybersecurity for an industrial and automation control system or IACS. So looking at you know policies, system, and component, uh, and what the vendor's actually doing, right? And the other nice thing is it considers cybersecurity through the life cycle of the industrial control system. So what does the vendor do? What does the system integrator or engineering consultancy do? And what do you as an asset owner have to do? Because you know we have to manage that cybersecurity through the life of the system. And then yeah, another great great document is NIST 882 R2. Thank you, Malcolm. Uh, I've actually got a printed bound copy behind me, but it's a very, very good reference. Uh, lots of good background information and it maps the NIST 853 control catalog into ICS with ICS guidance. 
And I find with a lot of these standards, some of the best stuff is actually in the appendices. So for 882, I think it's Appendix C, has a, a bunch of uh, you know common threat types, common vulnerabilities. They're not exhaustive lists, but they're fantastic pick lists for when you're doing a risk assessment. So we then also have industry specific resources. So you know the Australian Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework, the AESCSF. I was actually part of the team that developed this, and you know I'm kind of biased. It's a really good framework, but it's based off the uh, U.S. Department of Energy Electricity Subsector Cybersecurity Capability Maturity Model, or the you know uh, ESC2M2. And despite it being about energy, you can use it for any um, you know critical infrastructure provider. Um, the standard actually allows you to kind of scope both IT and OT. And what's nice in say AES-CSF is you can run two assessments, but it will take the lower score. And when you're doing an assessment, um, there's 282 practices. Um, it's a great opportunity to you know think, well, I do have a gap here, I should call out that gap. And when you get to the end of your assessment, you should actually have you know, all the things you should be thinking about to put into your remediation program. But I think, yeah, for a starting point, these standards are really, really good. Something like great for say AES-CSF is it's just um, introduced a common you know, terminology for the industry, which is really nice. And I know that the team that are running that still, you know, they're doing a lot of good work and you know, how do we provide guidance and incident response, supply chain risk management. So if you are in energy, definitely you know, reach out to the AES-CSF team. Um, and with the changes to Soki, it'll be interesting to see how AES-CSF is uh, merged into that. Um, we also have a question, Malcolm, in the Q&A. So maybe we can answer this now, we can shift to the back, but I think just a quick one on, um, is there documentation on how Nozomi integrates with Seams, for example, Splunk, Azure Sentinel, Curator, et cetera? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer this one. So out of the box, the actual Nozomi does integrate directly with um, Splunk, um, and Curator, Sentinel as well. So you got your, your common uh, formats here that we can integrate with any of the actual scene platforms. So yeah, I think that's a native uh, actual answer for us. Yeah, no, and I've, I've seen that integration, so awesome. So maybe next slide. I was just gonna quickly jump oh, in. Yeah, um, please. Yeah. But, yeah. From our OT backgrounds, I think the, the NIST 800-82R2 uh, is great. Why? It's free, but it's a good introduction ah. to the uh, material as well. So giving good backgrounds. And then once uh, your organization wants to go down and, and actually choose an actual standard like 62443, where you actually have to purchase it, at least you have some level of understanding based from the 882, which is coming from the 800-53 for the IT side of the business and how you can bring the, uh, I suppose, the ICS network in and interrelate that with the actual um, IT side. But again, the AES CSF is a really great framework, as Bruce was saying, not only because he worked on it, but Fantastic. it is easy to read, but it actually shows then at the end, the gaps between, say, even budget alignment between IT and OT and where the uplift is going to be required. Hence the reason why I suppose there's been a, a shift in change now uh, between IT and OT budgets. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, this is one of Malcolm's slides, which I think is fantastic. So mapping different industries, different viewpoints and different standards and guidelines. And not sure if there's something you want to add to that one, Malcolm. 
Well, I think it's just a, an interesting one to say where there are so many different um, international standards and guidelines, but for people that are usually being focused on a particular industry, it's good to say, hey, other people are doing stuff as well within this realm. So maybe I should go and have a look at them for their best practices and what can I then reintroduce into, into my industry. So when you've uh, got that blinkered approach as to I'm just going to focus on this, it's about um, standing back and going, what else can I learn from everyone else? Because reinventing the wheel, you know, barely have enough resources as, as it is to um, understand everything on a day-to-day -day basis. So learn from everyone else's mistakes and then better yourselves that way. So it's about efficiency gains too. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to read. <laughs> Um, so I think, yeah, talking about airport systems. So I did actually work for a aviation company for, for 10 months on a disaster recovery program when it was really, really interesting, but you know, airports are, as Malcolm said, um, cities, right? Like there's many systems or a systems of systems. Um, and the systems at an airport map into different industry verticals, right? So we think about something like a baggage handling system that, that looks like a SCADA system, uh, Building management looks like building management, so that's good. But things like power distribution, you look like a mini electrical utility. Um, and you have, yeah, like fuel, like, uh, you know, aviation fuel and things. So you have some oil and gas kind of distribution network technology. Then if you jump into actual airport systems, uh, you know, we have our physical like screening systems, traffic control. CEDA is quite an interesting organization. They they build a lot of the, uh, the check-in kind of you know, terminal equipment. And, and the idea is that different airline carriers can use the same infrastructure because it's provided by CETA. Uh, FIDS is really important. So that'd be flight information display system. You know, when you're walking through the airport and when planes are landing or departing, you know, they are really critical because that's how we're moving lots of people, you know, around the airport. Um, and, and a lot of other systems, you know, like how we pull planes into gates, things like that. I think something that sometimes gets overlooked is actually voice communications. Super critical in these environments, right? That you have lots of people moving around at the airport, vehicles on runways, you have aircraft, you have you know maintenance people. It's critical for them to be able to communicate with each other to make sure that they're you know operating safely. Um, and I know experience in, in say railways, if a voice system goes offline, that can actually be as critical as a signaling system going offline because you rely on that voice system to be the backup. Um, and yeah, other airport systems, you know, air bridges, lighting, fire and gas, typical scatter systems, uh, you know, trains are awesome. So you might have inter, inter facility terminal uh, uh, infrastructure. And then this interesting emerging IoT space, you know, CCTV, some building management systems and building access control converging for IoT. So yeah, I think an airport's a great case study of a systems of systems uh, operator. So if we think about Purdue model um, and you know mapping it into aviation, um, so starting at level four, this would be our typical IT environment at the airport. And you know, there'd be a lot of security services up here, like our SOC, but also how do we securely remote access into the environment? Uh, level 3.5, the OT DMZ is absolutely critical, right? This is that place where the two meet and we can enforce security policy. Level three then is that kind of control center for the airport. 
So in this case, think of like day of operations, like an airport operating system, where are people, what work's happening. And you can also consider for each airline that's actually operating at the airport, they have similar OT in their own organization. So there's communication between these level three systems. And then we break down into kind of the local cell or local area control networks at level two, level one, level zero. So you'll see some kind of local HMI, human machine interface, you know, for the baggage system or maybe for a local electrical distribution system. Um, and then, yeah, the subsystems underneath that. I think importantly too, like just to help people with, well, how does this map to Nozomi? So the Nozomi product suite, the Guardian can be a virtual or a hardware appliance. That's the device that's pulling in network traffic and doing analysis to figure out, you know, device inventory, communications protocols, looking for weirdness. That kind of device is a standalone unit that you can log into and go, okay, let's have a look at this, you know, action stuff. When you have many of those devices, they can roll up into a central management console, which is really important. You can imagine you don't want to keep logging into every device individually. You want that, you know, common situational awareness. And above that, there's tooling from Nozomi with their threat intelligence and asset intelligence of how you can enrich that um, that single pane of glass or that you know, situational awareness of that asset. We know have these type of vulnerabilities that could be um, being attacked by these threat actors. So kind of good to map the two together. So, you know, where things live. Um, and yeah, I think it's always good to have an example to walk through. I think coming back to the question as well on the Q&A from the, the same integration point. So we uh, you'd just do that from your central management console. So when you've got multiple guardians deployed, that's where we'd roll all that information up to the CMC and do our integration from there. And that's where you would do all your support functions too. Yeah, I just noticed uh, someone popped into chat. Um, yeah, if you could put your questions in Q&A, but yeah, there is a virtual guardian appliance. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to talk about, Malcolm. Yeah, I suppose with the actual Mosami um, product itself, it's a full stack appliance. So it's not as if you're deploying a, a server hardware, then you've got to um, deploy an actual operating system on top, and then you uh, install the application uh, for that. It's actually, it's an all-in-one bundle. So it doesn't matter if I was to run a virtual machine or the, the physical uh, virtual, uh, the physical garden itself it's the same uh, system in, in itself. So I can run it on my laptop as a VM. I can just run it on, on your host as well on the different hypervisors, or I can just deploy an actual physical appliance. It's the same firmware all the way through. Yeah, and I think what's also cool, Malcolm, you can run containers, right? On some rugged switches as well, which I think is pretty exciting. Docker containers, correct? And yeah, it yeah. Runs, runs all through uh, Azure, AWS, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the the future is now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, you know, pivoting to another industry, thinking about railway systems, um, kind of just wanted to like the big picture, what are the business drivers in rail, right? So to start with, there are differences between passenger and freight rail operators. Um, and, you know, I was discussing with Malcolm too, even differences in passenger for whether they're long haul versus, you know, a metro um, mass rapid transit system. And definitely rail is having that convergence of IT and OT, as we spoke in the beginning, not only in tech, but people and process. And an exciting example of that, for example, is uh, with, you know, IoT and Industry 4.0, there's just amazing condition-based monitoring systems that 
10, 15 years ago would have been economically infeasible, but now, you know, costs only a couple of dollars per month and can have some like massive, massive um, operational benefits to the company. And I think something that's definitely I've seen is this emerging passenger entertainment systems and guest Wi-Fi. So, you know, you might have uh, advertising on the train or you just, you know, have people on guest Wi-Fi. I think it's just important of, well, how is that system segmented? Um, you know, have we tested that? Do we know for sure that, you know, you can't easily transition between the environments? Um, many years ago, I know this was an issue with uh, with some of the, you know, planes where the entertainment system could get through to like a control system, which is makes people nervous for good reasons. And something else I, I know is this changing of asset ownership. You know, I think years ago, you, you'd kind of, you know, build a, build a train, you know, you'd spend all the money up front, build your train fleet and operate it. You know, now public transport operators are saying, well, can we partner with a manufacturer who will then lease that train back to us and shift it off from a you know capital investment into an operational investment. But in doing so, that uh, manufacturer owns the life cycle and the management and, you know, cyber maintenance. So it's interesting then contractually, how do you make that happen? So I think these are some of the things that are starting to kind of pull out. So, so next slide. So I've just got two um, short use cases to go through. Yeah, cool. This one here is about an intelligent um, highway operator here in, uh, in the APAC region. So one of the largest uh, operators, toll road. So again, it's about starting off where they're uh, the business challenge. What are they looking for as a company outcome? And then how did we solve that? So when you're looking at the, the challenge, we're always got to have a problem before we can give out that solution. So this customer here was heavily into IoT and just didn't have visibility into those level of assets. So they also have um, a- Sorry, Malcolm, I think the slide hasn't shifted over. Oh, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh. Got it? Uh, no, nah, it hasn't. So how good is Zoom? <laughs> There we go. There we go. Fantastic. Little pause there. Problem <laughs> between my laptop and the uh, and the seat. Pepcac. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, sorry guys. So yeah, just looking at that business business challenge. So again, just looking at uh, how do we give that visibility into IoT. So now how things have moved from uh, managing OT assets now got to evolve and understand how uh, IoT is now going to impact your environment. So having this level of visibility is what the, um, their internal SOC wanted to have um, information on. So then they could act on these types of uh, incidents. So the way, you know, as Bruce was saying before, we've got multiple vendors within environments too. You know, we outsource a lot of our, um, uh, of our operational activities. So how do we manage those vendors? And then how do we manage what they're doing within the environment? So we need to be able to show them how to detect those uh, OT and IoT types of uh, incidents. So we gave them the, that outcome of how we could integrate with their different environments, their different scene platforms, et cetera, and to give them that more reliable, uh, reliability around their operational systems. They also need to ensure because there's such an um, uh, important per or critical infrastructure within uh, the different states within APAC, that they need to ensure that these systems were 100% available, therefore they wouldn't be impacting the community. 
So the way we did that was to deploy multiple appliances within their different assets to ensure that they had visibility down to the detail to understand what was going on per asset. And then given that information was uh, built upon our, our PS uh, from our team as to how, how do we uh, rapidly deploy and then give them information and then that uh, return on investment straight up. The next one was looking at a metro network as well. Uh, this one was in EMEA region. And again, looking at their business challenge. So again, when we're looking at the IT side of the business, you know, a lot of people have many tools at their, um, in their tool belt to look into this and have visibility. But then when they're looking at uh, from an organizational perspective, they've usually lacked that uh, same level of support within the OT environment. So they might have a couple of tools, but they don't have full visibility. So that's where I suppose they went out to market and said, how can we handle this actual challenge? And then they also need to scale to support the whole national infrastructure. So as you can see, there's over 50 locations that they need to uh, monitor. So being such a geographically dispersed system, how could they, I suppose, attain all that information and then aggregate it into a simple, uh, sim simple pane of glass to then give them that actual outcome of having that visibility within their whole IoT and OT network? Because critical, critical infrastructure, well, the uh, key transportation network for the actual um, state itself, and that's how we provided that solution. So again, it's having that capability of having the guardians that could be deployed within the physical environments, or even when we're looking to the actual DCs, the data centers, to deploy the virtual appliances as well. And then how the system scales with the CMCs is how we can have multi-tiered architectures as well, and then working with different MSSPs. So I suppose just uh, coming to the close here. So what we're looking for around that conversion uh, vision is to ensure that we start off on our cyber roadmap. You know, you've got to know what's in your network before you can build upon that cyber security uh, program of works. So having full visibility within your networks, making sure that you're actually tracking your threats within the infrastructure as well. So once you've got your asset inventory and then you can do that cross correlation with uh, the vulnerability information, then that's how you can start to now understand where, what your risk factor is within your environment making sure once you can improve on your operations, so you're going to be receiving a good amount of data from your operational network that you can start to build upon and then do analysis on that for preventative maintenance too. So there's many different, uh, I suppose, return on investments that you can get from the actual system itself. And then making sure that you can integrate with a different and existing tool set within your IT environment, that where OT is now going to be, I suppose, not just be shoehorn, but you're going to integrate nicely together. So therefore you've got efficiency gains and budgetary gains there too. Bruce, let's, have, let's uh, finish yeah, up Yeah, bit, bit of homework. So <laughs> yeah, Malcolm and I was saying, look, uh, when we do these kind of talks, right, there's a lot of content. And I think sometimes people would like a, like what, what should I do or what's that call to action? So uh, yeah, we, we kind of just, bounce some thoughts of you know what you could do in the next week next month next six months um so yeah i think for the next week uh definitely have a look at your cybersecurity risk register and i put in brackets kind of cheekily you don't have a cybersecurity risk register uh don't worry you're not the first <laughs> we've, we've all been here so 
Um, if you don't have one, that's definitely a great starting point. And uh, you know, I have, have many friends that are in this predicament of they're in ops. Um, the systems that are getting handed into ops aren't quite like good, I guess. How do you actually raise that back to the business to say, when we're deploying new systems, we're not thinking of cybersecurity. The risk register is a great way to capture that, right? And get that onto the radar of you know the business to understand they have to do something. Um, definitely start thinking about what are your critical networks? You know, What are your, your assets that are critical? Um, that's a great starting point to think, do I have the right level of visibility where I need that? Um, and you know, for for that, like things like a um, like a crown jewels analysis or just understanding impact to your environment is really really important. Uh, and the next slide actually has our kind of like some Nozomi Networks resources that Malcolm's put together, which is really good. So as a starting point, just have a look at those three things. I think in the next month, um, you know, we we you know Malcolm and I are definitely saying that if you don't have an OT cyber program, but you do have an IT cybersecurity program, have that conversation with the business right on. Like, could this be a subset of IT? Is this our own thing? I think when you're working with people process technology, it's hard to do that just in a project. Often it's a series of projects, right? And the sequencing really matters. Um, and they're often multi-year kind of things. So projects should be a bit more contained and deliver an actual you know, product but a program is what you should be looking at to build a capability. And yeah, definitely plan a tabletop exercise. You know, I, I like, uh, you know, grab some beers or grab some pizza. I don't know, like bring people in and just have that conversation of, okay, let's, let's run through a scenario. I think a, a fantastic one is ransomware, right? Um, that's just going everywhere for a lot of organizations. Unfortunately, it's not a matter of, uh, of if, but when. So it's a lot better to have thought about it before it happens than having to learn it while it's happening. And then in the next six months, I think um, if you haven't perform a business impact assessment, right? You know, get your IT leadership, your OT leadership and walk through a scenario of, you know, a business continuity or major disaster. Hopefully a lot of organizations are thinking like this with COVID, right? Like the kind of disruption to the business with COVID and remote working. So there should hopefully be something there for you to work on. But to me, it's a great way to actually pull together IT and OT and start building that context and understanding. Um, and one that Malcolm and I definitely got excited about was disaster recovery exercises. So this is like, no, no, we're not doing it on paper. Let's actually fail over a control center. This is obviously a big impact activity. So you don't want to do it lightly. But um, I know a lot of organizations that will do this yearly, right? Um, I think AEMO and NEM have a process called summer, summer readiness. So, you know, as we come into these peak seasons where we need to have confidence, our systems work. I know previous places I've worked, cyclones are a thing as well. So coming into summer, like let's actually fail over to the disaster recovery site. Let's validate things work uh, because when you have to do it for real, it's a lot easier if you have comfort that, you know, it has worked at one time and, I would put, you know, put money on it. If you haven't tested it before, there'll definitely be things that don't work. So, so yeah, so a bit, a bit of homework. So hopefully that helps you pull something from this. Um, and I guess, yeah, we're on the, on the last slide then Malcolm. Yeah. And I noticed we did have a question come through too. I think you're typing yeah. maybe. Yeah. How do you incorporate business process modeling with a DevOps function 
that allows for operations to incorporate threat assessments based on inflow of data from disparate systems. So I think that's a pretty uh, unique question there. And I suppose it also depends um, where you want to do the threat modeling. Is this something that you do in your scene platform where you're doing your, your use cases type stuff? So I think that's where you'd want to be rolling up uh, information into your, your different, um, different sources of information. Uh, I'll be looking at those scene platforms to then develop those use cases to then uh, bring in the ingestation of that, that different um, information. Yeah, and it's a great question. I have some, some thoughts here as well, Malcolm. <laughs> but I think uh, definitely if you haven't had a look at um, uh, the Adam Showstack's threat modeling book, I think that's a great starting point. Uh, understanding what they call data flow diagrams. So, you know, build a view of the actors or the, the people understand the systems, how they interact with systems, trust boundaries, that kind of thing. And then depending on what tooling you have, like I know there's Archimate or there is um, iServer, but a way of mapping a BPMN kind of worldview into this business process, this swim lane with this technology piece interacts, then mapping that down into what does that look like from a logical architecture? Um, and then yeah, Overlaying that with a DFD and a threat model is how you can pull that together. But I think it's, it's a great question and that's where we need to be thinking, right? Like earlier, and you know, the term shift left, but the earlier we can do this in a security system development life cycle, the better. Um, Got another question here? Yeah, from Cody. Hey, Cody. Hey, John. Long time no see. So, <laughs> uh, so what are you guys seeing in terms of high level timelines to get from using a tool like Nozomi to do initial visibility, say to use uh, for, to enable remediation and planning for OT security programs to a steady state OT security monitoring. I guess all depends on resources, investment, and also what is going on with IT cyber programs too. Are you seeing most clients trying to do an OT monitoring or do a converged IT OT SOC? Well, again, on that depends on the organization uh, level of maturity. A lot of uh, companies initially just starting off doing the asset visibility first, and then as they build their cyber program, then again, it comes back to the resources and what do they want to do to integrate the systems, as I was saying before, about efficiencies into that SOC layer. So again, who's going to be the actual managing the SOC? Is it going to be internal or is it going to be an external SOC? What's their level of uh, skill set as well within that SOC layer to then ingest the information? But I suppose coming back to your initial part of the question is how long does it take? Well, it's pretty quick to get there because as soon as you switch it on, it's actually going to start to, I suppose, as we were saying before, start to receive that um, network traffic to then analyze it and then build up that asset inventory. But then mixed in with that thread intel feed as well, you're going to get that immediate uh, correlation on what the vulnerabilities are. So as you build out that baseline on, of your environment, and again, it depends on how dynamic uh, the, the actual environment is, so we could be going in for a couple of weeks, it could be a couple of months. And again, it just depends also on the processes in place for the team that are gonna be managing the tool. So again, you want them to learn as you go in the deployment phase. So they understand too, what's uh, actually occurring within, within the environment. Cause a lot of times people haven't had that uh, opportunity to understand the behavior of their network. So through the, the different trainings that, we, that, that I run, 
then showing them on the job training as to this is how the tool is now displaying your, your uh, traffic. Yeah, I think it's a great, great question. I think unfortunately we've, we've hit time, but <laughs> I, I guess the only thing I'd add, Malcolm, is I, I would probably suggest to people too to build a pilot site, right, if possible. Don't try and roll it out everywhere and then figure out how you'll manage it. I think kind of build a pilot, get that initial visibility and start to build the business process and then roll it out to the entire fleet. You get your 80% coverage first and then see where yep. your gaps are and go from there. Yeah, 100%. All awesome. Right. Well, maybe, yeah, the next slide and then we're probably probably done. Yep. So again, just um, tying off the whole webinar. So this is the, the resources page. Again, this will be, all be, this recording will be made available and sent out to everyone that's uh, registered. Again, along with the actual slide deck as well. So thanks everyone for joining and taking time out of your day. Uh, much appreciated. And thanks Bruce for joining. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. See you later. Thank you.